Hey, this is Aaron Carnes. We started this podcast in 2021 to promote my book, In Defense of Ska. Since then, the podcast has grown into its own thing. I've been working on an expanded second edition. I interviewed new people, edited every chapter, and there's a new final chapter, 30,000 new words. The expanded second edition of In Defense of Ska will be released on October 29th, 2024. Can you do something for me? Pre-order it right now at clashbooks.com under the books tab. The more copies it sells in advance, the more it'll get people to support ska music. Thanks. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Asian Man Records has released over 300 albums. Of course, people know the big names like Less Than Jake, Alkaline Trio, AJJ, Bomb the Music Industry, and Slapstick. But there have been several lesser-known records on the label that deserve just as much attention. Today we're going to focus on Short Round, a brilliant pop-punk-slash-indie-slash-emo group from Milpitas, California. The leader of the group, Jason Tin, was a huge ska fan and joined Mike Park's group The Chinkies in the late 90s when he was just 17 years old. A few years later, in 2002, Mike released Short Round's debut record, Language. It was a nice addition to the emo punk sound popular on the label at the time. However, there is a few ska songs on the record as well. We wanted to ask Jason about his experience playing in the Chinkies, as well as Short Round, and a later project called Marathon States. I don't really remember when I became friends with Jason, but I've been friends with Jason for a really long time. Yeah, I'm not as close to him as you, but yeah, I know him too. And I remember just like seeing him at uh, one of the Asian Man reunions and, you know, just being like, we were like old friends when we stopped and talked and stuff. But I don't, yeah, I don't really quite remember when I met him and when I became friends with him either. Jason was just like such a fast, immediate friend of mine, just goofing around and like rapping and like doing the robot with each other mm-hmm. and just being stupid. I really miss hanging out with Jason. He lives in Japan now. Oh, so it's going to be even harder to hang out with him. Yeah, going to have to go to Japan to hang out with Jason. So we need to get Omnigon Eve 6 tour to Japan. In Defense of Ska presents the Japan tour, reconnecting with Jason Tin. Let's get right into a serious conversation. Yeah. Adam told me that uh, you guys used to play this game where you would slap each other's faces. <laughs> and... <laughs> <laughs> yes. Give us the details. <laughs> what 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 was the I don't know the impetus of that game, Adam. At first we were like we would just pretend that we were gonna slap each other in the face, I think. And then we actually just started slapping each other in the face. <laughs> so And then I think we stopped because you actually did it really hard one time. And I got worried that you were actually mad at me. No, no, no. I, I do remember slap I, I think I I was like, okay, I'm gonna slap you. <laughs> and then the, fa- the look on your face was just like no words and no <laughs> no owl. It's just like, what happened? Because you had to reach so high to slap me too. Yes, for, for people who don't know. 
there are a lot of differences between Adam and I, height being one of them. Yeah, I don't know how we started doing that, but that was definitely a thing that used to happen a lot. Was this like a tour game where you guys would go to each other's houses and do this? <laughs> Just whenever we would see each other, like at somebody else's show, playing the show together, <laughs> hanging out. I didn't mean for that game to stop. <laughs> well, you moved to Japan. That was That's the only reason it stopped. When do you think the last time was that you guys slapped each other? Well, the last, mm, probably that time. Because the last time I saw you, Adam, was in, we were in Oakland. Yeah. And we walked by the um, cereal place. We went to, what, one, two, three, four? To one, two, one, two, three, four, go records? Yeah, yeah. We went there. You gave me some mm-hmm. warm beer. <laughs> <laughs> Why did I have warm beer? It was like leftover from a show. Okay, that makes sense. And you're like, here you go. I'm like, okay. Uh, and nobody slapped anybody. No slapping. Wow. No slapping. Slappers off. It's uh, it's kind of sad getting old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah. You played in a band. Uh, you played in a band called the Chinkies. I played in a band that today would might be. Oh well, okay. They they're still around. But yeah, I, I played in the Chinkies. From 1999. 1999. And uh, you toured quite a bit with them. Mm-hmm. What was it like touring with uh, Mike Park? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I, I think everyone is familiar with uh, Mike being who he is. You know, uh, food is important. Free food especially is important. Um, just doing crazy stuff. Uh I think the most important thing for me, at least, was since coming from Rycom, I didn't have a lot of previous musical experience, and I lived in an area where there was not a lot of, you know, opportunity to go see shows. Like I know you guys were talking about like Gilroy, and me growing up at the South Bay, it was literally difficult. So, not only starting a band with him. But it was just basically a crash course into the Scott Punk scene. It was very overwhelming. But but he was, uh, you know, you couldn't find a better guide, uh, honestly. And uh, but yeah, it was really fun. A lot of crazy stories. I don't know. I would have to be more specific. I'm sorry. Do you remember Mike getting crazy on tour? I mean, I remember him being naked a lot. <laughs> yeah, okay can we um can we isolate a specific uh a nudity experience uh no <laughs> it's just a blur it, it, it's just a big um muscly calved blur to me um, <laughs> skaking in his underwear uh yeah skaking in his underwear like if you had if you yeah if you had to give if I had to give the Cliff Notes version of Mike Park on tour the underwear free food free food skanking his underwear and not liking to drive <laughs> well well thankfully we were never in a position where that had to happen because we always had like uh, we actually had drivers usually I think except for Mexico when we played in Mexico with Voodoo and Bucko Nine one of the adults drove. I, I was only 17 at the time. I was straight out of high school. Where exactly were you from um, that didn't have like much access to shows before this? Yeah, you said South Bay, but where exactly in the South Bay? Milpitas. 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 
Yeah, M Town. Tell the listeners about Milpitas if they've you know if they've never been. Milpitas has been once described as the place people drive through uh, to get to somewhere else, uh, next to San Jose, uh, Fremont, and some little suburb, predominantly, you know, Asian gangsters, and uh, yeah. Big Asian community, but that was pretty much it. We didn't really have any shows until it was like 96 when one of my classmates, he put on a show and it was Slow Gherkin. And that was one show that still resonates in my mind. And then like one year it was Slow Gherkin. It was basically a Raj Records showcase, kind of. So it was like Slow Gherkin blind spot punch the clown and other than that if you didn't put on shows yourself you had to go somewhere else either san jose or take the bart to san francisco or oakland or whatever where was that show at because i remember seeing gherkin in milpitas around that time i wonder if i was at that show you definitely definitely probably were because uh that was at the uh community center it was basically located next to a big strip mall pretty certain i was there yeah i think ibopa played one of the years too Oh, yeah. Yeah, speaking of Ibopa, didn't Jamie record the first short round demo? <laughs> yes, yes. Tell us about that. <laughs> he, uh, I heard he was recording local bands through Christian from Firme. And I was like, okay. And then I would, I would always see Jamie at shows, and then we talked, and he was super, super, super nice. We recorded at his house the very, very first short round EP. And it was interesting because super kind, hospitable guy. But then I remember sometimes he would, unrelated, uh, go into like little fits of anger. (laughs) Directed towards the recording process or what? No, like it would be like a phone call from like somebody else. Like, a relative or like his mom or something or whatever and he would just i don't i don't remember if he threw the phone or if he shot the phone or something shot <laughs> like the with, phone. with a bb gun or something <laughs> but yeah he, he he got it was weird to see him like be so distinctively calm one minute and then compartmentalize his emotions and then get angry another but recording with him he was really kind and everything and then i think i read in an interview with him after i don't know if it was about us but he was like yeah making money recording for some really bad scott pants <laughs> I, I sort of remember that i remember him saying oh yeah i used to make ends meet by recording these like terrible pop punk or ska bands yeah y'all yeah. and and i remember wondering is he talking about jason <laughs> i remember most, thinking most that. likely I mean, I couldn't sing. <laughs> How did you end up uh, be- being in Cheekies? So you were 17 when you joined that band? I was a fresh, young 17. Um, it, it, we could, <laughs> that's it. Um, we <laughs> could, uh, <laughs> thanks Slow Gherkin for that. Because um, I just always went to their shows. And so about the time they got signed to Asian Man, I think 
that could be around the time when Mike started looking for members. And then with Slow Gherkin and his, their posse, so their friends, whatever, they would talk to me about that. Like, I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? Um, and then I talked with Mike at a show, very like no longer than like a minute. And he's like, can you play? I'm like, yeah. I was like, how's your tone? I'm like, good. Um, obviously it wasn't, but yeah, I mean, we emailed or we, oh, we talked on the phone and then I met up with him in person to do the video, music video. And then everything kept on rolling from there. So it was not a uh, strict vetting process. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> but he trusted me. The music video was the first thing you did. That was the first thing we did. It was a video for we don't you don't know um, that was never released. So if you look on the back of the Chinkies album, well, there's two different versions. Because so I don't know what's on the back of the red version. The first Chinkies of Chinkies are coming on the back of that. There's a photo of all of us, and that's from the video. What was the premise of the video? What was the uh, what did it look like? Playing in a kitchen. I don't know whose kitchen it was, um, and the thing is, it wasn't all the real members, quote unquote. So you had Todd Inoue from the Metro, San Jose Metro. Oh, Todd was in. And he was Todd was in it, yeah. And then you had Greg, who usually plays guitar, but he was playing drums in the video. And Mia was Mia playing bass. But then that that, that was, it was just the premise of us playing in the kitchen, and then also. Um, a, a tiny little cramped practice space, which is where you see the picture. And then I think they tried to do some like karaoke kind of scenes, but that never made it in the video, I think. So it wasn't released, but was it actually edited together so you, you guys could watch it? Yeah, we watched it. And um, yeah, we watched it. <laughs> so. Are you sure it's not released? I swear I've seen the footage from the practice space. You, I mean, well, well, there, I just remember the reaction of it not being so good. So in my memory, it was never ready. <laughs> <laughs> who, do you know who shot it? Was it like just a buddy or was it like somebody who actually made videos? It was one of his friends. You, Aaron, you might know him. Okay. I don't remember his name, but he was, he was around that time. I think you were probably still living with him, with Mike. I know I was living. Uh, I was living with Mike when Chinkies was starting to come together because I remember uh, you, you guys were using the practice space, and I think that might have even been why he built it. That might be. Can you guys just explain to people who are listening what the practice space at Mike's house looked like? <laughs> so, okay, um, it was in the garage. Um, so it was just like this little teeny. It was so small. Like if you had like a four piece rock band, you guys were all cramped in there like elbow to elbow playing and uh i don't remember if it was soundproofed or if it was just wood i feel like it had carpet on the walls yeah yeah definitely carpet okay it had carpet so because my band i was in a band at the time called the sudsman and uh like we got to we used that practice space too so i did get to play in that practice space and then i think at the very same time chinkies were rehearsing as well right you're talking about the practice space at in the Los Gatos house. Yeah. 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 Yes. Okay. So the video was recorded at a different place 
Oh, was it? Different. Yeah, it was a different. Um, yeah, it was a different. Uh, I don't know whose house it was. I don't. Maybe it was. I don't know why I want to say Chuck, but. Anyways, so it was recorded in a different place, and the guy who recorded it, I remember him getting sued because he was part of the camera crew, the the video crew that helped record Aaliyah's last video. And so, why did he get sued? Just for being part of it? I don't know. Obviously, Mike has a better memory than I do. So, <laughs> since the first album was already recorded uh, with with Slapstick, um, then I assume the next thing is that you were just playing shows, like right? Shows was yes. next before recording. Okay. Was it was the Japan tour? Was that the first thing that you guys did? That was not the first thing. The first thing was in 1999. 1999, um, we played in Mopitas. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, we played in January 99. I just graduated and I put on a show. It was supposed to be just my band and some other bands. Then Mike said, hey, you know, let's get some practice in and so we played on the show unannounced and it was just a bunch of, you know, random bands. And then we played first and it was great because my guitar string broke immediately in the first song. And then <laughs> I think the, the next week, it was maybe the next week or the week after, soon after we played in Mexico with Voodoo Glow Skulls and Buckle Nut. <laughs> so, and, and how are those shows? Yeah. <laughs> It was amazing. Like, um, we drove there, and it was just really nice. We played in Tijuana and Ensenada, and Tijuana was huge. I I don't know, maybe a thousand people, and like just a ton of bands. Um, It was scary that we were told not to bring our most of our instruments because there might be theft. And I remember the security there had machine guns. And then we played an Ensenada. It was really fun. Um, I didn't drink back then. So it was a very, I had a very different experience, but it was really cool. Like, especially meeting the guys from Voodoo Glow Skulls, because uh, I loved them. So it was really weird for like a fan to be able to play with one of their favorite bands at the time. And they were all really, really nice. So, how many shows with, uh, with any band had you played before going to Mexico? So, before that was the Cheekies. And then maybe I would say I played like maybe like five or so with my own band before that. But before then, I not like punk shows. Like I was part of this music school in my town and we would do things like play like county fairs, like the Santa Clara County Fair or the Gilroy Festival. So we did a lot of that. Um, but in terms of like actual shows, not much experience. Okay, so um, this this thing that you did is as, as what, what what would exactly was it? Let's go back a little bit. So it was a musical, like you know anybody could join it or whatever. And then for people who wanted to learn, how to be performers, you know, you could join a band and we do covers. We'd pick our own covers, and for me, it was me and my friends who introduced me to ska. So we played. We try to not play popular songs because we are meh, uh, angsty. And so we play, I know we played uh, uh, 
uh, Anxiety Tech by Skinky Pickle. Okay. Um, we tried to do Toasters, but they the guy the guitarist who chose a song he chose a song about suicide, so we couldn't do that. Um, and we did a Tom Jones cover of it's not unusual, but ska. <laughs> so, we, <laughs> so <laughs> we did we did that kind of stuff. Um, just uh, we play at county fairs, and people didn't know what the hell was going on, but they're like, "Oh, live music!" and people not playing super super popular music. So it was a fun experience. How much uh, how much uh, skanking was happening in the audience? I would actually force my friends who would show up. I would force them to skank. <laughs> Honestly, like okay. I, one time we played at Santa Clara. I think it was Santa Clara County Fair, and we played "Impression That I Get." Um, for some reason, because obviously I sound like Dickie Barrett, so of course that's a good match. Um, one of my friends was there, and he was like a total skinhead kind of guy. And I'm like, you're the one I, in the microphone. I'm like, you're the only one who knows how to skank. So can you please do it? And I just put him on the spot. So yeah, skanking was mandatory. <laughs> and did he did he do it? Yeah, yeah. Everyone was looking nice. at him. <laughs> so. <laughs> He had to. Yeah, peer pressure. Peer pressure, so good. We'll be right back after this. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So you, you played the Gilroy Garlic Festival also? A long time ago. I don't remember much about it, but yeah. All right. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't know you came to Gilroy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't. Sorry, there was. I, I didn't tell you. I'm sorry. <laughs> you were like three blocks from my ch- my childhood house. Yeah. What's going on? We've always been meant to be together. <laughs> <laughs> did you? Did, okay, but did you try the garlic ice cream when you were at the festival? No. What? Why? Cut. Well, so you ha- you have to. That's why. I, I, no, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling like I lost out on a great experience. Yeah. So. yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, it'll still be there the next time you make it to the garlic festival. Okay. 
<laughs> so did Japan, though, that came pretty quick after the Mexico tour? Uh, it did, but I wasn't on it. Cause oh, wow. I got grounded for like half a year. <laughs> so, what did you get grounded for? I got grounded because... See, I had already... Uh, I, I might be getting my timeline switched, but basically I, I graduated early because I got sent to a continuation school, uh, which is for all the dropouts and the gang members. But right. I got sent there even though I didn't have to go. Um, I was always cutting class, so I got grounded a lot. And then, but because of that, Mike thought I couldn't go. Mike, Mike believed that uh, my parents wouldn't say yes. So he didn't, so they didn't take me. And then I asked my mom, I was like, well, I know you're mad at me, but um, my, my band is going to Japan, but it's too late. If I asked you, could I go to Japan? Would you say yes? She said yes. So, but it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, is that, is that why you moved to Japan as an adult? Is it because of this? Yeah, that was a huge. Uh, going to Japan the next year in two thousand, in year two thousand, I went with, with them to Japan, and it was just it, the floodgates burst open. Oh no! Yeah, it was like a dream, and then I moved last a few years ago. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, um, but I think that was I think out after the first Japan tour. I think after that. After. I don't know when it was, but then we did the Asian Man Showcase tour in California. Who was on that? At first, I thought Link 80 was supposed to be on that, but for some reason, you guys weren't. Um, what year was it? Uh, okay, now I know why. Okay, never mind. Um, it, <laughs> it was 99, the year of the rat. Okay. What is the year of the rat? I don't know. 1999, um, in March, we, it was Slogurkin. No, was it? Slogurkin, I think, maybe played. Alkaline Trio played their first... It was, like, I think it was Alkaline's first time in the Bay Area. And then it was uh, MUC30. Yeah, MU, Shinkies, Alkaline Trio. Pretty sure it's Slogurkin. I don't remember who else. I think there's, like, maybe one more band. Nice. And how, and how was that? It was amazing. Because I remember... I was the first one to show up at the Gilman Show. That was our first show. And then Alkaline Trio is the second band that show up. So it was just Alkaline Trio and me, and I was a huge Alkaline fan. And then I asked them, hey, I heard that we're supposed to borrow your gear. <laughs> and Matt Skiba is like, uh, yeah, we don't allow Asians to, he didn't say Asians, but we don't allow <laughs> Asians to buy all our stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so, Damn. so then we didn't play. No, um, <laughs> yeah, it was, it, was great. <laughs> it was great. And then that was basically kind of set off my love for MU. I already had been a fan of them, but that was my first time seeing them live. And um, it was just everything. Because that was during their self-titled time. Yeah. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. And, but it was still, for me, as a longtime fan, it still felt really weird that like it felt like oh my god am am I dying soon and no one has told me because I get to have these dreams fulfilled playing with bands I love and 
my first time playing at Gilman. And we played Gilman, Petaluma, um, Santa Cruz, and Southern California. And that was really fun. I, I hear Adam has has uh, talked about before that um, on a tour that you guys are all on that Chinkies had to wear suits. Oh, this wasn't a, that wasn't a tour though that Jason was on. Oh man, another one. Okay, well, never but, mind. But <laughs> anyways, <laughs> but no, but yeah, it, but that, that was on all of our tours. Um, I wore everyone wore suits except for Mia, and I, but I didn't wear a suit ever. I wore like a V neck. Either way, yeah, we had to wear suits all the time to keep up an image of you know. I think at, at that time Mike was really into the noise conspiracy. Um, okay. International noise conspiracy. So he and also you know there's the two whole two thing. But I think having that kind of look kind of set us apart a little bit. Other side, other than you know completely Asian band, but you know <laughs> one or the other, one or the other, pick one, <laughs> both. <laughs> would the would the suits get nasty? Show after show, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. So, what was that like? Every time, it, well, it 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 uh, they, you know, everyone's everyone smelled, um, <laughs> and, but we just got used to it. It felt like you know we were, at least for me, it felt like I was paying my dues being around smelly stuff. Yeah, but I I, I would always we, but we would always change after our set, and that's where you know, Mike in underwear comes in. So <laughs> yeah. Just, but like, I know the feeling though of putting, putting on your show clothes like the next day. Yeah. And like, maybe you didn't get a good chance to like really air them out. Like that's the worst feeling. Yeah. But you're in a band and people don't care. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. True. I don't know. Once, once you start, once you put on the nasty clothes and then start sweating in them again, it's like, it doesn't even matter. Yeah. It was, it was grody, but. Um, I, it was sweat well earned, I think maybe. <laughs> so wait, so Adam and Jason, had you guys ever been on the same tour at the same time then? Yeah. The only tour I think we did together was plea for peace. Yeah. We didn't play neither. Well, you played. I played, but, but we also were both crew. We were both crew. I, I played maybe like a handful of solo shows, but, or solo sets. Yeah, you did. You were stage manager. I was merch. Oh, yep. Yeah, I have a really good picture of you doing merch at Emos in uh, Austin. The Emos show is a good one because I because I'm thinking. What do you about, remember about the Emos show? You know exactly what I'm thinking about. Uh, <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> yeah, you do. You were playing. Link Eddie was playing, and I was all the way all the way in the back of the room. And you decided oh, yeah. with your big lumbering body to jump onto the ground. <laughs> and, and then we both like pointed at each other. Yep. Even though you're now like a, kind of like a turtle on your back, but like, but you're still, we, we still make contact. <laughs> it was beautiful. I mean, I don't get a lot of opportunities to crowd surf. It, I, I, it was amazing. I, the, I also, the, Emo's was definitely one of those places that I felt okay doing that app for some reason because they had those rafters yeah and so you could crowd surf and you could grab onto the rafters and kind of like half be on the audience half be holding yourself up in the rafters if you're really tall yes 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but oh man, I fully remember that just being being up there doing the the last couple lines of the song packing up. Yeah. And and pointing at you and you pointing back from the back yeah. of the room. That's a great moment. Yeah, on that tour, I think that was one of my favorite moments of Link 80 uh Link 80 set was the part where you just break it down and it was it, everything got really heavy and the audience went really heavy. Yeah. That was really good. Yeah. I I remember that was it was getting crazier and crazier through that tour. Like we played at the Galaxy Club in Dallas and I dove off the monitors like and I did like a handspring off the monitor. Uh-huh. And like I just remember like the audience kind of like caught me and then lifted me high above the stage and then slammed me down into the stage. <laughs> like I I I came back down onto the stage from above the stage. And then and then we played at the Nile. Uh-huh. And we did it and there was a barricade there. And I I ran I handed my guitar off to Steve Borth. Uh-huh. Grabbed the microphone and ran from the back of the stage to dive into the audience. And so I had to clear like a five foot gap. So I took like a running start and everybody yeah. moved out of the way. No. And I went straight to the floor and, and probably bruised a rib, jumped up and finished the song. But I just remember, I just remember talking to Dan Pothast about it later and him just going, oh, Adam's dead. Adam's dead. <laughs> when he saw me hit, he thought for sure I just broke my neck. <laughs> I, the Dallas show. I have difficulty remembering because that's when, you know, it was all your friends um, who came to the show. Right. Um, Elizabeth and all of them. Oh, Kirsten and, and Elizabeth. Yeah. And like, I just remember getting a bit, uh, I had a few drinks and I spent uh -huh. about maybe half of the time breakdancing. <laughs> I'm sure shirts were sold and CDs were sold. Break dancing was a priority. Did you do the pop locking move where you put the apple in your mouth and <laughs> take it down to your stomach and back up? No, it was just like a baby at a wedding, just like trying to. <laughs> Were you a good merch uh, person? I don't know. I really, I thought all, I thought like every day I was going to get fired by Mike. Okay. Um, yeah. Does he ever have a talking to with you? I think the only time was like the second plea for peace. He told me, Hey, don't drink so much. Uh, but other than that, um, he not a little talking to, he's just like, remember to do this, remember to do this. And I would always forget. Cause that's just how I am. Right. But, um, not a super talking to, but the thing is our relationship was a lot like big brother, little brother. So the communication sometimes was a little different. Um, Never a stern talking to, honestly. Um, okay. But yeah, I remember honestly thinking, oh, I was going to get fired. And then I got on the phone with the person he was seeing at the time. And she was like, oh, he, he tells me you're doing, doing great. I'm like, really? Because I haven't heard that. So. <laughs> <laughs> what What do you remember about, about the show in Atlanta? <laughs> <laughs> okay, there's two things. I remember Mike doing a somersault and then hurting himself. Okay. And then the one thing I think that you're talking about is the woman who was like seven foot tall. <laughs> is that what you're asking? Yes. <laughs> it was, 
it was kind of like a forced perspective kind of thing because I took pictures. Yeah. And it, I remember before that, like everyone was like, Jason, 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 because I'm 5'4 and she was like seven feet tall. Everyone's like, you got to take a picture with her. I'm like, okay. And then you take a picture <laughs> and it looks, it just looks like she's really far away, but she's yeah. not. Is yeah. that a, wait? She's really close. What's what is it like? It looks like I'm really far away, but I'm yeah. actually like right in front of the camera. Yeah. So I remember seeing her walk into the room and feeling like the whole room like tilted because she was <laughs> because she was like normal, like she was like very normal proportions. She wasn't yeah. like long and skinny. She was like a normal looking person, just huge. She was super tall. She played on like the volleyball team. And, and I remember after the show, just coming outside to like load out and, and you're just talking to her just looking straight up, <laughs> just the hugest smile on your face. <laughs> that yes, 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 yes. Adam doesn't normally get to experience what it's like to meet a tall person. Right. That's why he talks to me. So just <laughs> the opposite phenomenon which is funny because like in atlanta they have the uh sci-fi whatever convention dragon con and i went there one year and anytime i saw a tall woman there are a lot of like super 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 tall women there anytime i saw them i would get a picture with them and it would always be me tilting my head back trying to talk to them so wait, you, you you this is like a thing you do it was. Well, he has to do it. He's 5'4". <laughs> yeah. He has to tilt his head all the way back. No, I mean the, the part where you get a photo. Oh, the taking the picture? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, for, for a while, it was women holding me like a baby. And then after a while. <laughs> no one ever argued, like, hey, would you, would you hold me like a baby? They're like, oh, sure. Yeah, it happened a lot. <laughs> I remember that happening a lot. How would you you just say it? That would, that's how you would present just this? like that, yeah. Yeah, just like just like that to a complete stranger, yeah. And they'd be like, "Oh yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah, yeah, yeah." I got five they'd minutes. Like, sure, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let me put my coffee down. Yeah. <laughs> Let me pick this baby up. <laughs> <laughs> and then, okay, so once the photo's taken, what do you say? Just thank you, and, and then you leave. Yeah, it's like, yeah, well, okay, see ya. (laughs) I I think during that era, I didn't make the most clearest of decisions, so my memory is a little fuzzy. All right. Sorry. I mean, one of my favorite things about the tall girl is that she she came the next time we played at the the masquerade, Uh and she brought her boyfriend, and he was 6'2". Ah. He's like this giant, like yoked six two dude, but he looked tiny next to him. <laughs> like he's big, huge, broad shoulders, tiny. Love it. We talked about your band briefly, short round. Um, yeah. Okay, so tell the tell the youngins where this name came from. Oh Jesus. Okay, so according to, <laughs> according to uh, a comment on Punk News, I was the actor Indiana Jones. <laughs> who played short round so i have the right to call my band that but in reality racist guy uh in reality (laughs) in reality uh yeah that was that was it did come from that that movie but i was just like okay whatever and then i played in a band before that 
locally. And then I started a new band, which I, I was like, it's going to be called Short Round. It's going to be do this. I actually had goals. And then our, we, our, we played our first show again in Milpitas with Flo Gherkin. And then um, we went through a bunch of lineup changes. And this is around the same time, you know, we were touring with uh, the Chinkies were touring. And then uh, we started playing with the Lawrence Arms when they were there in town. And then one day Mike comes over to my house and he plays me the new Chinkies record. And then he's like, oh, can you play the short round demo? Like, okay. And I played it for him. He's like, all right, so this is what we're going to do. You're going to record with Steve Choi. You're going to record an album that's going to be on Asian Man, blah, 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 blah. Like, uh-huh. I didn't see that coming because I didn't. I never asked. I never expected for Short Round to be on Asian Man because there was a lot of kind of, what do you call it, imposter syndrome. Um, mm-hmm. But then we ended up being on Asian Man. Choi, we did not end up recording with Choi, but uh brendan ended up being our producer so we recorded in chicago and that was really fun recording with brendan to see that different side of him yeah what was uh what was he like in that setting uh he he was actually really really just uh serious he was a good mentor working with matt allison was really fun after every session none of us were old enough to drink but they would always sneak us into the LNL in Chicago. And I distinctly remember one time they had, there was one night where there was a strict door guy. So Brendan's wife um, dropped a glass to get the bar t- door guy's attention. And then we just snuck it. <laughs> that's uh, a good trick. That's an amazing trick. Yeah. yeah. But, um, so uh, the experience was really, um, positive he taught me a lot uh and matt was just amazing um i didn't i didn't see him after that until right before i moved to japan a a couple years ago i went to chicago as a last hurrah to see the lawrence arms and he was at the bar so but yeah um it was a great experience the record though that record um came out in like 2002 right 2002 we recorded in 2001 october or november okay so you were part of the um amr scotty emo pipeline then i was yes <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah when i went through a lot of different because i initially started you know listening to nirvana and all that 90s stuff like sonic youth and then bikini kill and then there was the skank and pickle side the dill record side so I didn't really have allegiance to like one or another, but I initially did not like all that emo stuff because of the people who did a complete 180. You know, I didn't start dressing Scott or dressing emo or not really. I don't know. I guess I did. I don't know. But yeah, I listened <laughs> to that Impossible's record, and that kind of set off a spark. Yeah, that Impossible's record and that that Animal Chimp stuff. Was kind of, was kind of a big deal. That was a big in terms of like the direction you went with. Um... Yeah, because I knew I couldn't play like two Tony kind of stuff. I I just did not have the groove um, to really do ska on my own. 
So like with the Chinkies, I could get my ska feelings out. And then with Short Round, that was more of like the pop punk. Um, yeah. Emo kind of pop punk, eh? pop punk emo kind of stuff. Melodic pop punk kind of stuff. Because I was, that was really my kind of jam. We'll be right back after this. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. There's, let's talk about this song called um, "Cleansing Cut Scrape." Mm. So we did we did squeeze a ska song on the record. We did. Well, there's two. I think there's two. But yeah, there's that. It was kind of there was kind of uh, less and less and less of ska at that point. It's particularly like the style you were playing. But mm. you had a ska song or two. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's my favorite. I think that's maybe my favorite song on the record. And strangely enough, I wrote that on Fee for Peas. Because Mike, oh yeah, yeah, Mike was like, you, because I was supposed to record soon after I got back from Three for Peace, and Mike was like, you gotta write a song as much as you can, and so I would use his guitar every day, and then I wrote a big chunk of that song while we were on tour. Um, yeah, it, it there's no specific, um motive behind it but it was that kind of ska that i get like the downbeat kind of stuff that minor chord kind of stuff yeah when i listen to like a special song those are the my kind of favorite songs no, it's a great song what, what, what can you tell us about the song in terms of like you know lyrically and stuff and, and what it, what was kind of inspiring it as you were writing it on plea for peace it was exactly where i was in my my mindset it was exactly where i was in terms of mindset like kind of directionless um a lot of anxiety um because outside of like playing shows i just I, I was still a very very awkward kid did not i was just insane so uh it was a lot of just getting all my frustrations anxiety mainly my anxieties my social anxieties out um being an introvert uh so having a scoss ska song like that but it had to be downbeat and a minor chord because i don't know those aren't feelings to dance to so (laughs) or you can dance and just stare at your shoes yeah (laughs) when you were touring or playing shows or doing merch i mean were those feelings prominent or is this this a situation where they were less than i think it was really difficult playing in bands and touring because First and foremost, I was, you know, just some ska punk band from the suburbs who didn't have like what we would call that kind of punk upbringing or cred. So I had a lot of imposter syndrome and I never felt like completely integrated. So like when we would play shows, everyone was always older than me, except for Choi, but Steve Choi is Steve Choi, you know, um, you know, he has his whole history of being a musician. And then 
it always just felt really awkward, honestly. Um, going on the Plea for Peace tour was super fun, but at the same time, it was just, I was just like screaming, internal screaming, because I had no idea how to talk to any of these people. Except for like, Adam was always cool. <laughs> Adam was always cool. <laughs> um, Ted Mole from MU330 was great, because he was a nerd. I think he still is probably. But um, yeah, he's a scientist. But, so yeah, yeah. So he's nerd. I yeah, I love that guy. But um, for the most part, I just it was like a completely different thing that I just it had. It took a hard, took a long time for me to try to relate with everything because I was like, this is a community that I'm not used to. You know, um, at my school, my high school, it was just. You, it was mostly hip hop or R and B is that what people listen to, and so getting into like the punk scene in those years, when there were a lot of my seniors, you know, like the Asian man bands and everything, it was really just it was awkward, super super awkward. It's like because like the people I hung out with, none of them were not really any of them were musicians. They were just all nine to fivers. Um. And they were not really creative types. So it was a completely different world for me. Yeah. I imagine too, doing the merch was like, that's like a, you need to be like chatty. You know, people are, you're constantly dealing with people. You're constantly talking with people. Maybe you're even like trying to sell them a little bit on stuff. Yeah. That, well, that's, well, that's the fun thing about having a writer and beer. <laughs> so with, so I, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, looking back on it, I'm really embarrassed. But uh, yeah, I just, I just partied kind of, but inside there was just a lot of like, not a lot of. Um, I don't know. It, it, I I just drank quite a bit on the tour, so that's kind of how you coped with it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was it was a little nutty. What do you remember about on the plea for peace tour, hanging out in the back lounge? <laughs> hanging out in the I don't you know I didn't have a lot of time hanging out in the back lounge did I really I, I felt like that's that's where you would did you actually have a bunk on the bus or did you sleep back there oh well, you're talking about the bus okay um yeah. sometimes I sometimes no I think sometimes I had a I had to sleep in the back I think I did because if I if I remember right I slept in the I slept in on the front bench in the bus uh-huh. And you slept in the back lounge. Right. And people would just hang out back there until like three in the morning. The Tetris lounge. And you you would not get to sleep. Yeah. That's okay. I'm alive now. (laughs) (laughs) After making Chris Murray mad during our Tetris games. How did did you make him mad? Just, Just we would play Tetris against each other. And then, Adam, do you remember that? Barely. So, it was like a new Tetris. But I want to hear about I want to hear about Chris Murray getting mad though. I because th- we always would play Tetris in the back, and then um, there was this one function you could do like you save up blocks in your column, and then when the time is right, you could dump those blocks into another player's column. And I think basically that he would get mad at me about that if I remember correctly. Oh, because you had a lot of blocks and you threw them at him. Yes. 
but he was he was he was a fantastic musician and he was a great part of the Peter Pan story. But I, I love the idea of Chris Murray being like so super chill on that tour, playing acoustic guitar songs, but then getting mad at you about Tetris. Oh, totally, <laughs> Unch- Tetris unchilled him. Yes. So you, um, there's a big gap of time. We're not like you're not doing short round and, and you're not playing music, but then you come back and do marathon states. Mm. Um, which I love. I love that record. Oh, thank you. It's you, um, Max and Morgan from Hard Go- Girls, right? Yes. Who else is involved with that project? Very, um, very interesting. Uh, so I moved to Georgia and then every time I would visit California, I would set up around like a couple of days with Max and Morgan and we'd just write some songs. Bob would record, Bob Vioma from Shinobu would record like the drums and the bass. And then I would take the tracks back to Georgia, where we would record, I would record the guitar and vocals with Joel Hatstadt. Joel Hatstadt played in a band with Jeff Rosenstock and called Pegasus's XL. And also okay. Joel Hatstadt would eventually start doing like, I guess, mastering for a bunch of Asian records. I think he did the most, some of the most recent um, Mike Park records. And um, then I had my friend Sarah, Sam Paulson, she played in Manor Astro Man and she did some vocals on it. So she was my kind of ska friend in Athens. Was there a reason why you kind of hadn't, had, didn't play music for a while before this? Yeah. Um, I left California for a lot of reasons. Just, I just needed to work on myself. And so I was really depressed for a long time. And I didn't have, I felt like putting these kind of like really intense feelings into music would not be appropriate. But then I just, I knew it was good for my recovery. So, and working with Max and Morgan was unlike anything else I've ever experienced. Um, so we just did it little by little. And then I, I went in it with the idea, like, you know, this is just a vanity project. We're never going to play live. So I wanted to write everything that I, I wanted to do everything I hoped to do. Um, you know, I wanted to write a song that sounds like this or a song that sounds like this. And if this was the last album I ever made, I would be happy. So that was the intention. But before that, I just had no motivation or I, I was just really afraid of playing again because being a stagnant musician, it's like not exercising for a long time. So doing it, getting back to it hurts a lot more. I really like, I mean, I don't, I don't know how much of it's, you know, Max, Max and Morgan, but the, the edge, the edge in the songs I really love. It's like, um, it's got more, I don't know if, if aggression is the right word, but it has this sharper edge to it. Yeah. I, I felt the same way too. And a lot, it's half and half. Like, it's like, there was one song I wanted to like, write like a Ted Leo song, but then we get to Max and he just puts all in into it. And it turns into just completely different, like more harder, faster edge song. Um, but also it comes with like, you know, getting older and looking back at my old recordings, like I didn't sing as hard or whatever. And there was just a lot of, I spent a lot of time. It was like four years working on this record. 
Yeah. So I have a lot of time to refine things. And um, Joel, as an engineer, was really encouraging in terms of getting like the natural feelings out. The record sounds very personal. Um, did you just get to a place where you felt like it was a healthy process to kind of work out your, what you were dealing with in song? Yeah. Um, super personal because there was a through line through all the songs. Um, and anytime I couldn't think of a lyric, I would just think of an X-Men comic storyline and just use those. But mainly it was just about therapy. Um, I, I, the, the, how the words would sound and what words to use were very, very important for me. Um, and I just remember like reading like a Kathleen Hanna interview and how she was talking about the, how she would write music, write music to reflect the sound would have to reflect the lyrics. Mm -hmm. If it's sad, if it's sad lyrics, you know, it's kind of an obvious thing, but I would never, I would never consciously think about that. So yeah, um, it was very therapeutic and there was one song, which is basically the song with Sam on vocals is Velasco. Uh, it's a song with two people. That's basically me writing my side of the story and then writing the other person's side of the story. And it's basically an apology. If that person ever hears that song, I doubt they will, but it's me basically saying, I finally see where you're coming from and this is my apology. I see. So when you say that the through line is therapy, you mean that like literally therapy or like that the songs were intended to be therapeutic? Yeah, both. Definitely both. Yeah, because when I lived in Georgia, I didn't, I played in a couple of bands, other people's bands, but it was such a different scene for me that all I could do is like, I, I know playing my own songs in Athens, it would, it, they would, they're very accepting, but I always felt out of place. So I was like, I just got to do this for myself, which was what initially made Short Round fun was making things for myself. And then after we put out a record, I just got really depressed because like now that it's an actually record, a record and people know about it, all this anxiety came to came bubbling up, and I just couldn't write for myself anymore. So, Marathon States was exactly what I intended it to be: was no pressure, um, completely honest, and done on my terms, kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. You did do like when after that first short round record, you did do more stuff though, right? Or did you did you just not feel very good about it? We did, uh, like, we did record some stuff. We put out an EP, a split EP, on my friend Tyler, Tyler's label. But other than that, I, I really didn't feel good about anything we did after that. Well, we did two, I did two songs with Max and Morgan at the tail end of Short Round, because they were in the last iteration. Oh, okay. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, we actually played our last show with Suicide Machines in 2005. I'm sorry, what was the question again? <laughs> You said that the anxiety that came from having this first album go out into the world and basically be this thing that people could talk about and have kind of judgments about, that that felt like it was crippling to you to produce music that came from an honest place. So I was asking if the stuff that you did record and write after, if you felt unhappy with it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it was like, of course, you know, I expected like, oh, 
people are going to write reviews. That never really bothered me. If anything, I always thought the bad reviews were funny. Like there was a shredding paper review. It was one sentence. And it's like 20 something, something minutes of a waste of my time. That's all it said. So, wow. I thought it was hilarious. I didn't really care. But it was the fact that like, it's not private anymore. That bothered me. Like I didn't even like showing my bandmates my lyrics because um, it was really embarrassing. It doesn't make any sense when I say it, but it's how I felt. Um, but yeah, anything I wrote after, because there was an expectation afterwards yeah, um, yeah. that I have to keep on doing it, it, it just took... Maybe it's me being scared of challenging myself. I think that might have been part of it. But yeah, it. I just anything that I made really afterwards, I just did not like much at all so did did marathon states play any song shows or did it just exist in this album i played solo shows i played solo shows in georgia um yeah we i did a couple a handful of solo shows and that was really it but i had to since all the songs were written with the band there was it was really hard for me to like how do i make this a solo song so that was really short-lived. So I, I did write more songs after that, but they were never recorded. And I for, I basically forgot any new song that I wrote. What was that experience like playing uh, the Marathon State songs? Especially, I imagine, too, like acoustic, that's more, there's more opportunity for people to actually hear what you're saying. And it's a little, probably feels even more vulnerable. Well, it, I mean, a lot of time, thankfully, a lot of time had passed by then. And that was in my, I was in my, Ted Leo phase, uh, where uh, you know, you, you know, he, whether he plays with a band or plays solo, he still has that energy. Sure, because uh, he always played because he always played with electric guitar, and that that just kind of set off a light. Like between him and also being an Amy Mann fan, like I was like, oh, you could do it, and so I did it, and everyone was really receptive. But for me. I didn't feel like I put enough time into making it its own individual, like solo version kind of thing. So I was really, really hard on myself. Yeah, I, I was in a much different place where I wasn't as embarrassed. We'll be right back after this. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA, and they include camping. Russ. How do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. When did you move to Japan then? You said a couple of years ago? Yeah. Um, as of June, it's been three years. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a big move to leave the country i mean yeah what uh what led to that decision the election <laughs> was it yeah wow yeah honestly honestly as soon as the election dropped because i was i follow that you know um sarah kenzior the journalist uh well anyways she is like a expert on like dictatorships and stuff like that and autocracies and so i followed her a lot and i noticed like everything that she was saying was like happening and i'm like i'm out 
So 2016, I made my decision. And then so for the next two years, I, you know, slowly saved up money. And I didn't, I didn't really tell anybody until like, like really short after, shortly before I left. But it was that living in Georgia was really difficult. I lived there for like 11 years. And it was really, really hard because going from the Bay Area to this little college town in the South, it's a very, very different experience in terms of a lot of things. I got, I became more conscious of my identity of being an Asian American. And I just got sick of a lot of things. And I, it was not just a fiscal decision, but like a personal decision. Moving to Japan was the only choice for me because I wanted to be a teacher in the U.S., but there was a lot of other problems there. Um, so I moved here, and uh, I don't regret. There's not been a moment of pause in terms of my decision. Oh wow! Yeah. Are, sorry. Are you are you teaching in Japan? I'm teaching. Uh, yeah, I teach returnees, like students who have lived or studied abroad. So they speak English, but it's like funny because some speak American English, British English, or um, there is there's one woman I work with. She kind of has a Swedish accent, <laughs> so <laughs> so it's really funny. Um, but yeah, when I, it was it was great because I moved here and. You know, we don't get as many ska, international ska punk bands over here, but I think within the first month, I got to see the Suicide Machines again. Oh, nice. And I went up to Jay. We we played before in Japan, but I went up to Jay. It's been years, but I went up to Jay. I'm like, oh, big fan, uh, I am. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, thanks. I'm like, dude, it's me. <laughs> what was uh what was it like seeing suicide machines in japan like uh you know watching them play the u.s and then was the japan Jap was the japanese audience different well we played with them in 2001 in japan okay and that i so that was a really bit different time in terms of scott punk in japan uh it was great. It was a great tour. It was very different than when we played there in 2000. But when I saw Suicide Machines again two, two years, three years ago, yeah, it was super, super, super small club. But, you know, oh, no, it wasn't Suicide Machines. It was Jay and the Traders. Jay Navarro and the Traders. Okay. Um, so it was a different vibe, but there's still, when you go to see a show in Japan, it's like front to back, everyone's down to clown. Um, not so much the case if you go to a show in the US where some people just go to hang out. So in my experience, most Japanese punk shows are just like wall-to-wall -wall nutty. Okay. So, so people are there, they're fans of the band, they want to they wanna go all in on the experience? Yeah, yeah. They, uh, you know, they're just really passionate especially since you know they're an international band how many opportunities do you get you know it's like when you live in a small town and then a band that you might not really be into comes in but you're but the general audience is still going to be really really grateful 
and enthusiastic about whoever comes to their town. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious. I'd, I'd love to get your take on, um, like, I feel like, you know, in somewhat recent years, there's been some discussion about the Chinky's legacy. Um, like, there was an article in 2017 in Vice about Chinky's. Did you read this article? I did. I was very surprised by it, yeah. So the article, the premise is, like, has to do with, like, the fact that there was this band called The Slants came out and how they were getting all this publicity and controversy for re reclaiming a, a slur. Um, but then it's like, but there's this band that did it like, you know, in the nineties and nobody really thought about it. You know, it wasn't even like, it wasn't, it wasn't like international news. So it's kind of like, that was really the premise. Um, yeah. I was just curious what, what you thought about that and, and that legacy. Oh, I'm going to get in trouble with somebody. <laughs> go, no, just go ahead. Lay it out there. I, that's been, that's, I think, Coming up to this, I, I've just been really worrying about that. Like, because, you know, you're right. The discussion has changed quite a bit these days. And, you know, um, honestly, I do, I, I understand the premise of the name. Um, it's just, there are a lot of people who are very passionate about that idea of like, we don't have to do these kind of things in order to um, challenge racism or perceptions of racism. Because honestly, I've never had a person talk to me about the name of the band and feel embarrassed about saying the name, which kind of made me uncomfortable. Sure, yeah. Um, I mean, it, it's not the same when it's like, you know, uh, people like us in the scene who understand, you know, you don't have to tell me that you understand. Um, I get it. But there's a lot of people, like especially in the Asian American activist community that would take maybe offense with it because it's like, it's not our, it would not be our job to say, hey, you should think about this more. Like we should just be a band without that kind of name. Um, so, it should be the people who are not Asian American who should maybe do some deep thinking about, hey, uh, this all Asian band called the, uh, you know, <laughs> see, that's the thing. It would be hard to, or, or you know, like Linda, the Linda Linda Lindas, or the Linda Lindas, right? They're basically all almost an all Asian band, uh, but they don't have, you know, that kind of Asian name, although it's taken from an Asian movie, but there's no, hey, we're all Asian kind of thing. So the times have changed. So it's just, I don't know, it's, it's just a product, product of its time, in my opinion. Um, if that ban was to happen today, I don't believe it would have the same name. But it's, it's, it's really hard because how a lot, like I said, a lot, how a lot of Asian, Asian American activists think about it is very different than like, you know, the general public. So I'm kind of split in between the two. Like, I think what we did was very important. Um, you know, it was always great to meet Asian American fans at shows. Um, but I'm wondering how much the name played a factor. Maybe, maybe, maybe it was kind of like that bright neon sign. And then once you come in, you understand that there's more to it. 
because part of it can be construed as like that kind of Asian American comedian that just gets popular by making self-deprecating Asian jokes, which we didn't really do. I thought it was weird in the article that she, the 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 author pointed to the song Asian Prodigy as like an example of how you were addressing, Mike was addressing these issues of being Asian. And I felt like that's like the only song, I think. And it's just a song he wrote really about what it was like to grow up in his own family. Sure. Yeah. And and see, that's, that's a problem that's happening right now um, is that a lot of people are tired of the same story. Like uh, people didn't like my stinky lunch or people uh, or, or I had sick parents. So a lot of people nowadays are very tired of that um, theme. But the thing is, at that time, this was, what, you know, 98? Yeah, yeah. You, you can't really compare the two, I don't believe. It's, it's, I don't know what your perspective is, but from, from my point of view, it seemed like it was in the 90s, you know, there was very, very little representation of Asian Americans in, like, music or TV or whatever. But now there's a lot more. But there's also a lot more uh, overt racism towards Asian Americans. Absolutely. So on one hand, it seems like, wow, there's more representation and there's more um, showing of the different sides of Asian American people. But there's also like more like hate and like this. And it's really like really, really upsetting. So I don't know what that if that's what that is, you know, how we how we how we view this as a culture, these two things. Well, you have to respect, respect everyone's opinions. No, um, I think it go- <laughs> I just think it goes back to that whole that quote where it's like, "To some, equality feels like oppression." You know, where you know, growing up in the Bay Area, even though there was a huge Asian population, I got I remember hearing a lot of racist garbage growing up mm-hmm. because there were so many Asians. Just like in the South, there's there was more anti-black uh, sentiment that I heard because there's such a big black population. And the thing is, I for these people getting louder and louder with their racism, that's just like grow. I don't want to say growing pains, but it's that kind of subconsciously I'm losing foothold on dominating this media or whatever. That's how I feel. So, yeah, it's definitely, no one could argue that more and more Asian representation is good, but I think what's important, back to what we're talking about with the article, is like the variety of representation is just as important because, you know, you grow up in the Bay Area, how many Asian friends do you have? And they're all different. And in the punk, and how many do you see at the punk scene? And it's just kind of like a given that you're, that no, oh, there's a lot of different types of people we see at the punk show, and I think, in general, that's what the general public needs to see more of, because like, I remember, some Asian American online magazine they put out a Asian artists list, and it was all dance music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is weird. It's like because for me, like all the Asians I know, they either listen to hip hop. Depeche Mode or punk rock? Interesting. Yeah. What do you think? What do I think? <laughs> what do Adam? What do you think? What do you think, Adam? 
the whole thing brought me back to, do you remember when we were at a party at Dottie's house in Gilroy? Yes. 100%. And some fucking drunk dude called you Mushu Pork. (laughs) I don't remember that name, but yeah, I remember him being racist. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And he was, he was drunk. And so we all got on his case. And then I remember he, he tried to spout some shit. He was like, Hey man, it's the year 2000. Racism's dead. <laughs> well, he was trying to start a rap. And, and first off, it was the year 2001. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was probably trying to rap. But yeah, I remember. He, like You and I, we've talked about that a hundred times. The year 2000. It's the year 2000. Racism is dead. But it's the year 2001. <laughs> Racism is oh, back. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Racism is back. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, I don't know. It's because, you know, the thing is, Adam, um, you and I, we make jokes a lot, right? Yeah. And because you're my buddy. And, but then when I moved to Georgia, and it was like I went through a time machine. The amount of racism I got, uh, it was just debilitating. So whenever, like, you know, you and I would text, I'd be like, ah, oh, man, not now. Just like, I'm too tired. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So it's not, it wasn't like, I'm mad at everybody. It was just like, dude, that stuff can really take it out of you. Cause I was, you know, that, you know, I grew up seeing everyone. I grew up in a town that was like 40% Asian. And then we moved to Georgia, it was like 4%. Yeah. All bad. Yeah, all bad, but then, yeah. But then, Ska. Yeah. And Ska. But then I, Ska. I, I, lived in, uh, I lived in Las Vegas. My wife and I moved there for like a year. This was like uh, 99, 2000. And um, now I'm not saying like California doesn't have like racism problems, especially institutional racism. But of course, my experience growing up in California was people weren't, um, they didn't broadcast it at least, you know? Yeah. But, Living in Las Vegas for a year, like where I were, I was a waiter for at Denny's. I was a, I, dr- I delivered pizza. I had a few experiences where people I barely knew mm. just would see me as a white person and they would just say horrible racist things to me, like, like nothing. Like they just assumed I was on board. And, um, it actually shocked me so much. I was like, didn't even know how to respond. Like I wasn't like, I wasn't prepared to be like, don't say that to me. Like right. fuck off! I didn't. I wasn't even prepared for that because I wasn't even used to that. So it was. It was, it was just weird to, to like you know go to this other place. That's kind of. I don't know. I mean, it's not exactly what you're saying, but it was weird. I wasn't used to that. Like that kind of behavior, really. It's weird. Um, you know, it's like uh, you know, being a cisgendered man. I'm. I didn't for a long time. I was not aware of my privilege. You know, I thought I was a good feminist ally because i listen to feminist punk bands but that was not the case and then you know if if a woman was around me and i wouldn't do anything but like if she was getting defensive or whatever i'm like what just happened and i would just but i would have to think about what they were going through like you know what if if i'm a sexist guy i should probably think about that i should probably reconsider what i've been doing um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it, it is does take you aback when you're in a new environment and 
these people are acting a certain way, you know, and they make assumptions about you based off of, you know, your, your shared privilege and you wouldn't, you're not used to it. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, like I've gotten to the point in my years where I'm like, you know, I'm not going to tell them, I'm not going to try to change someone else's behavior. Um, as long as like the people around me are positive, uh, that's all I could do. Cause mm-hmm. yeah, I'm, I'm in a position right now where I, where I live, you know, a lot of people who have moved here from like the U S or whatever, they have different, I, I, I run into a lot of really bad people who move here and they don't think I speak English. So I'll hear a lot of racist stuff. Um, wow. And I'm not going to argue with them. I'm, I'm just not for most, most of the time. I'm just going to say, fuck it. I have my own things to deal with. I will tell, however, the bartender what they're saying. <laughs> and then the bartender will charge the double. Sure. Yeah. Good. good. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to In Defense of Ska. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe to the show wherever you normally download podcasts. If you haven't already, grab a copy of my book, In Defense of Ska, available at clashbooks.com. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. It's at In Defense of Ska. You can also sign up for my newsletter at aaroncarns.substack.com. You will get the podcast sent directly to your inbox every Wednesday. In Defense of Ska would not be possible without the great team that tirelessly works on it every week. So you should go check out their other projects as well. Co-host Adam Davis has a great band called Omnigon. Give them a follow on Instagram. It's simply at Omnigon. And our editor, Chris Reeves, has a phenomenal record label and podcast called Ska Punk International. For more information, go to skapunkinternational.com. And on that note, we leave you by saying, Ska now more than ever. Thank you. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.